Welcome everybody to our live webinar, 9-11, An Architect's Guide, a three-part series. Today's Wednesday, April 6th, 2022. I'm Richard Gage, AIA, member of the American Institute of Architects and founder of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth uh, and the former CEO of that organization. Uh, I am on my own now, flying solo, independent of AE 9-11 Truth. I've apparently outgrown my old nest. It's a whole story. You can learn more about it at our website, richardgage911.org. We now have, by the way, more than 3,500 architects and engineers signed on to the petition demanding a new investigation into the destruction of all three World Trade Center skyscrapers on 9-11. This is part one of the webinar, which is three parts altogether. World Trade Center Building 7. It's about the third tower, a 47-story skyscraper that collapses suddenly, symmetrically, into its own footprint in under seven seconds. This is all at 5.20 in the afternoon on 9-11. We're going to be going into it. Let me first introduce you to my wonderful uh, uh, assistant and wife, uh, Ms. Gail Griffin. Hi, Gail. <laughs> you called me Gail Griffin. You mean Gail Gage. I went you were my Griffin when I married you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. That's, oh, that's funny. funny. Gail <laughs> Gage. She's now married. Been married that way for a few years, right? Yes. Coming up All on right. our third anniversary. <laughs> well, Gail has some exciting uh, announcements. And also, uh, she has uh, some um, some upcoming announcements. Uh, Stuff and 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 to tell you guys how to ask your questions of me uh, following this webinar. So where do we want to start, Gail? Well, I think we should start with their interviews. You had a couple of really awesome interviews that were lately. Uh, yeah. One was the ripple effect with Ricky Verandas. Mm -hmm. Man, Taka, it was a really unique, very candid interview. Um, in fact, I would tell our audience that if you really want to know Richard, then watch this interview. It's very up close and personal. I was very, very impressed. And then um, George Galloway, he is where, the host. Wait, where, where are they going to find that? Well, these are both. These interviews are on our website. So and you can go that? to the website. Oh, I didn't say it. That's why you missed it. Um, <laughs> and you know then, our website. Oh, richardgage911.org. O-R-G. Yeah. Yes. So you can go there to find these interviews. And then after that, you were interviewed by George Galloway, which mm -hmm. he's the host of Mother of All Talk Shows in the UK. And he's very supportive of the 9-11 Truth Movement and Richard in particular. In fact, Richard interviewed with him a couple other times prior to this, this last one. And uh, George has presented like over a thousand mostly live television and radio shows. He's very popular in the UK. Yeah. And then did you want to comment on either one of those interviews, Richard? Nope. Okay. Moving on then. And the last couple of podcasts that we did was Art Olivier, the filmmaker of Operation Terror. And that was really actually an awesome film. Um, it was a rather low budget film, but yet it was really super well done. Um, oh, you're muffled. Are you facing away from the microphone? No. I'm not. Oh, that's better. Stay like oh, stay like that. I didn't do anything, so that's weird. Um, 
So he's a, a filmmaker that made this film, Operation Terror, but he's a 9-11 researcher. So he has put a whole lot of research into this film. And if you watch it, it's it's interesting because you just keep seeing one after another these topics of 9-11 that people have discovered as false flag. And and so it's 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 interesting. And you don't have to agree with everything that he brings out in the film, but uh, there's just a lot of truth in there. And it really connects the dots. Uh, he was the um, U.S. Department of Homeland Security had placed him on the terrorist watch list, which means that because of this film, they were pretty concerned about him. And he was also the 2000 libertarian opponent to Dick Cheney, huh. Cheney when he was running. And so, yes. Yeah, those are, and remember, you can go see those podcasts also on our, at our website, richardgage911.org, O-R-G. Great. Yes, and then for podcasts coming up, we have, tomorrow, we have Holland V, and Richard, I'll let you talk about him a little bit. Holland is the producer of the Oklahoma City bombing film called A Noble Lie. Yes. Uh, the Oklahoma City bombing was also a false flag operation, like so many, if not all of them. And uh, it's going to be exposed coming up when, Gail? Um, we have him on this, let's see, tomorrow. Tomorrow night. <laughs> yes, tomorrow 1 night. 1 p.m. Uh, Pacific. I guess that's not night. That's tomorrow afternoon for us. Right. Yeah, it's tomorrow afternoon. So we've got Very him exciting. at one tomorrow. Yes. We'll be and showing then... clips of the film too. In fact, we got to get those clips, Gail. Cool. What else is coming up? And then we have John Perkins next Tuesday on our podcast. John Perkins. Same time. Mm-hmm. Same time, one o'clock PM. So those will both be coming up. You guys be sure to catch those. We'll put out a notification on the social media forum. Very awesome. John Perkins, uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Um, a, a, a huge uh, fan of the work that we do here at Richard Gage 9-11 and uh, very aware of, of, of the 9-11 uh, hoax um, pulled off on the American people. Yes. And Gail, how do people ask their questions? So whatever social media platform you're on that you can comment on below the video. The comments you're muffled now. Oh, that is weird. I'm no, not doing no, anything. Just, stay just like that. You're doing uh, something because every time I call your attention to it, you fix it. So stay like that. I am. That's weird because I didn't do anything except comment. So anyways, um, so put your question into the comment box below the video and I will take that question and copy it over so that I can ask Richard your question at the end of the podcast. Great. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes you, you just need to stay like this. I think that's probably just move the microphone closer to your, to your teeth. <laughs> Very <Okay>. good. <laughs> we'll look. What? I said, if I get it any closer, I'm going to eat it. Yeah, yeah, you went muffled again. Interesting. We'll figure that one out, Gail. Let's make a note and let's uh, work on that. Because okay. um, I haven't seen that problem before. Mm -hmm. Don't know what that's about. All right, we'll let you go and um, uh, we'll come back. How's that? Yeah. 
Sounds there wonderful. she goes. Be sure to mute. Um, and thanks, uh, everybody. As we, let's uh, let's keep rocking and rolling here as we realize that we've got 3,500 architects and engineers signed on to this petition, and they're growing all the time. And uh, for those who want to know something about uh, my background, uh, which is um, uh, interesting to me, at least, <laughs> um, I was responsible at a local firm in the San Francisco Bay Area for the construction documents for these three and $10 million gymnasiums. And uh, the construction documents uh, for <clears throat> this $125 million high school. And more recently, before launching full-time into this important outreach effort, I had similar responsibilities uh, working on this uh, $400 million mixed-use project near Las Vegas with six blocks of retail, mid-rise office space, and parking structure. Altogether, about 1,200 well, 1, tons of fireproofed steel framing. I now work full-time educating architects, engineers, and others to understand what really happened at the World Trade Center using the material in these courses. So uh, with that in mind, uh, why don't we jump right into it? Uh, because most people don't know anything about the third tower that came down on 9-11, a 47-story a, uh, a skyscraper that collapses in the middle of the afternoon. Well, the end of the afternoon. Uh, did you know about it? Um, uh, I, I mean, I'm shocked. I go all around the country talking to architects and engineers. They don't know about it. It's it's incredible. This is um, uh, would be the tallest building in most of our states. Uh, it it is you know half the height of the twin towers, which were the tallest buildings in the world at the time that they were uh, built in in '73. I think it was topped off. Um, so it's part of the World Trade Center complex built in the 1980s, mid 80s. Um, and uh, it wasn't hit by an airplane and yet it went down. That's what we're going to be talking about today. How'd that happen? Uh, it was the third uh, skyscraper to collapse. It's about 110 yards uh, from the North Tower. Some of the debris did hit it. There were some fires. Um, the, it's st standing just fine, as, as you can see, after the towers came down. And there it is, so standing until the afternoon at 5.20 when this happens. Uh, notice uh, that the East Penthouse goes down first uh, and uh, looks like an isolated event, followed seven seconds later. Uh, we have the uniform collapse of the top of this building, uh, the, the West Penthouse and Screenwall, uh, uh, just a half a second prior to the overall collapse. Now, it did complete its collapse. There. <laughs> we'll come back and look at that. Let's first go to the official story and find out what they say about this collapse. What we found was that uncontrolled building fires caused an extraordinary event. The collapse of World Trade Center 7 was primarily due to fire. Primarily due to fires. Well, what fires? Um, we'll, we'll come to that. Uh, but let's listen again. Uh, these fires. Here we go. Uh, so uh, to, uh, to about 2.30 p.m. on the east side, these fires are indeed burning uh, uh, on the 12th floor near this faded column number 79. But these are the worst fires that we have photographic or video evidence of in this building. And that's really important because uh, these were said to have been raging and out-of-control fires. 
Um, they're fairly normal office fires for uh, uh, a high-rise building, though. Uh, at 3 p.m., those fires are moving uh, to toward the east, uh, oh, excuse me, the west, away from uh, the, the northeast corner, as you see where they're burning quite, quite uh, um, filling a couple of windows, at least, full of uh, flames. And then they move on uh, toward the west. So NIST uh, says that these fires uh, caused a set of events that caused this column to fail which is the focus of their particular effort in explaining this building's collapse. They use a fire simulation, which uh, shows fires uh, on the south side, which is closest to the north tower. And those fires uh, moved uh, along uh, and hovered around column 79 for a couple hours, uh, which is a problem, as you'll see. Uh, and then... Finally, some of those fires moved uh, toward the west. Well, they contradict themselves. The fire, they say the fires don't persist in any one location for more than about 20 or 30 minutes. So this is a, a strong problem with their theory because this is recognized as that's all the fuel there is to burn in these buildings. Fire protection engineers understand that a fire only burns a given area for up to 30 minutes. And those fires... Uh, were burnt out on the 12th floor an hour and a half before the collapse. They progressed from the east toward the west. Here they're burning now on the west at 350. And that's really important. Why? Because the photographs show that those fires uh, were uh, indeed uh, burning on the 12th floor in this area, uh, according to uh, the the fire simulation provided by Chris Sarns. And that fire uh, uh, moves over, according to the photographs, uh, by 4 p.m. Now, that's really important because NIST shows them hovering around this area, uh, which is completely contradicted by the photographs and the videos. They're completely out on that floor by 5 p.m. Yet by 5 p.m., NIST claims that those fires are still there. Why do they do that? Because they have a theory. And let's get into it. Our study has identified thermal expansion as a new phenomenon that can cause the collapse of a structure. For the first time, we have shown that fire can induce a progressive collapse. Okay, so fire, for the first time, is inducing a progressive collapse due to thermal expansion. And you can see on the screen, the column at the very right is column 79. And that's the column that first buckles, causing the floors to come down, followed by a quick succession of failures of adjoining column. So we have uh, that theory uh, backed up uh, by their computer model, or is it? Let's look at the theory first. We have fires in this area around this column 79, causing these long span beams to expand thermal expansion, pushing this girder off of its seat on this column 79, causing floor 13 to fall on 12 and so on. Let's step through this because actually not one of these steps in their 
critical uh, theory here about this building's collapse could be true. First of all, these beams are fireproofed, and that fireproofing is applied about half of it on in this during this photograph. You can see that the <clears throat> the beams are fireproof. They never would be able to achieve the temperature to cause them uh, to sag or expand. <clears throat> that's what thermal expansion, that's what thermal protection does. Protects the steel from the heat of the fire. Well, NIST ignored the fire insulation in their computer model. I mean, they just ignored it. In addition to that, they put all of the heat, 1400 degrees Fahrenheit or so, into this building and into these beams in, in, in a second and a half, forcing them to sag, excuse me, forcing them to expand, whereas normally they would have just sagged, as you'll see in a moment. So uh, none of that could have even happened. And then the girder, uh, uh, which is said to have been pushed off of its seat, could not have been pushed off of its seat. Why? Because it is pinned. Whoops. Oops, let's, uh, it is pinned. There we go. Double click. It's pinned to the concrete slab up above with uh, shear studs, Nelson studs, uh, 30 of them. It can't be pushed sideways, but NIST just ignored those, uh, claiming they weren't there somehow. But the shop drawings show that they were there. Well, let's say that they weren't there. And these beams could have pushed that girder sideways. Well, we have a few other problems here. The seat on which that girder sits is 12 inches long. It would have had to have been pushed all the way off of that seat, 12 inches. Uh, but this says, no, it only had to be pushed halfway off of its seat, at which time that flange folded. Uh, and when it folded, the girder came crashing down. Well, that couldn't have been true either because that flange is supported from folding by the three-quarter inch thick stiffeners that are welded to it and the beam's web, the middle part, the eye of the I-beam. <clears throat> so we have uh, a real problem here shown here in plan view, looking down and looking across, we have that three-quarter inch stiffener in elevation view. So NIST just throws that out, ignores that, because they're trying to prove a theory here, um, ignoring and omitting key structural elements in the process. Well, let's say that that stiffener wasn't there for some reason, even though the shop drawings show that it is. Uh, th that beam uh, could not have just fallen uh, once it fell off of its seat, because the, there are two other massive beams framed into that column, which would keep most of that floor from falling and ever probably even probably wouldn't even hit the ground, the, the, the slab below. And if it could have, though, let's just say it could have, how much force would it take to break those column, uh, beam to column connections below that slab? It would have taken 632,000 pounds of dynamic force. But there's only 10,000 
pounds of dynamic force, excuse me, 60,000 pounds of dynamic force, 10 times less than is required to break that connection. Uh, so it couldn't possibly have broken those connections uh, down there. Uh, but let's say it could have, and that connection was broken and there was this interior progressive collapse, as NIST claims, uh, for nine floors leaving column 79 unbraced at which time it then buckles and causes this caving in of the inside of the building. Well, if the inside of this building was caving, then all that load would, would have been pulling on the exterior perimeter structural steel system, causing it to uh, pull in as well. And crumpling like a beer can, looking like a crumpled beer can. Uh, but we don't have incredible uh, evidence, any evidence of that, such as a, a massive amount of windows and granite panels breaking. So, it, and you'll see that again. Um, let's go to NIST animation and, and see what, what they actually claim here. Here's our structural model showing the building collapsing, which matches quite quite well with the video of the event. Does it? Let's put them side by side and see. Here's the NIST model on the right, the actual video of the event on the left. The East Penthouse falls first, but then you would have had incredible breaking up of pan uh, windows and granite panels uh, as a result of the uh, the damage seen on the left side of NIST computer model. Plus, the computer model stops just two seconds after the overall collapse of the building. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, that means that it, it they don't want us to see it tipping over, is what it looks like it means. I mean, and it's crumpling uh, like a beer can itself, but the video doesn't do that. So they can't even get their computer model to mimic uh and having taken seven years to study this building uh they can't they can't make it happen so we submitted a request for correction it was denied they said well it might jeopardize public safety if we were to release this wait a minute doesn't it jeopardize public safety to withhold this key information the computer input data from the architects and engineers who are tasked with ensuring the public safety. We've got to have this information and peer review it. After all, if this building came down due to normal office fires, then there are hundreds of other skyscrapers similarly designed, which could also come down due to normal office fires, which are, are not that uncommon, as you'll see. So, we use the scientific method in at, at Richard Gage 911. Uh, we have a question: How do the tower come down? We do some background research. How have other towers come down? Make some observations. We construct a hypothesis. That's our best guess as to how the the tower came down. Uh, maybe it came down by fire. Maybe it was controlled demolition. We have a lot of evidence for that we'll be showing you today. We test uh, 
we, we make predictions based on these hypotheses and then test those predictions with experiments to try to get to the truth of what really happened. We don't focus in solely on our favorite hypothesis, as NIST has done. Um, uh, we It's an objective process. Uh, we try to eliminate uh, uh, factors such as political and financial obligations that might sway our objective opinion as to how the building came down. We analyze the results. We draw conclusions. If the hypothesis is corroborated, we report the results in an open, transparent manner so all can build on the body of the work that we're doing. Uh, so we uh, report those results um, and uh, we don't hide them. We don't say it might jeopardize public safety if we were to release these results to you architects and engineers who are trying to figure out what really happened here. If the hypothesis is not corroborated, as we will find today that NIST's was not, we go back, we construct a new hypothesis until it matches the predictions, the experiments, the analyze, the results, the analysis, uh, the conclusions, until we find one that is corroborated, which is what we're about today. So let's start at the beginning. Do, do, we do some background research. Have other skyscrapers collapsed um, uh, due to fires? What does fire do? Uh, well, fire is an organic process. It, it burns out an area in roughly 20 minutes or so, uh, looking for fresh new fuel sources. And as NIST has acknowledged, uh, such fires didn't persist in any one location for more than about 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, so we have um, uh, a key failure here on the part of NIST. Uh, so do fires, uh, uh, what do they do in high rises? They, I mean, we've, we've never lost a, a steel frame high rise before, but say in wood frame buildings uh, that, that are not as high, uh, we might expect a, a phased uh, uh, set of failures that are asymmetrical. A building would fall over, obeying the the laws of entropy or increasing disintegration. Um, so this, this is what we, we might expect. Uh, how about um, in the UK? Hang on one second. I just have to bring up. Oh. Oh, I know what happened. Um, in the UK, in Cardington, uh, 1995, there was a test, a huge test. They built an eight-story building and burned it down just to see what would happen. Let's see. This was the largest test of its kind ever conducted. It showed how unprotected steel can be distorted, even by a normal office fire. But as is typical in steel buildings. Hey, let's keep going here. Structural beams only slowly and progressively warped and sagged. There was no chance of a sudden collapse. In over 20 years, um, I have not seen until recently a protected steel structure that has collapsed in a fire. 
until recently. Of course, he's referring here to 9-11 when we had not two, but three protected steel structures collapse due to fire. Uh, the, the summary, executive summary, cites that this is an inherently stable behavior because this is a highly redundant nature, um, the structural steel form. So you might have some bending, you might have some sagging, particularly like in this case, where they purposefully did not fireproof this steel. They uh, had some sagging and some bending, but the connections do not fail. That was what was said to have failed initially um, uh, in the NIST report. So here, the definitive test case study is completely ignored by NIST. And right, we've never lost a steel frame skyscraper. May 4th, 1988, the first interstate bank, a 62-story building in Los Angeles, California, suffered a three-and-a-half-hour fire which burned across five floors and caused an estimated $200 million of damage. It did not collapse. February 23, 1991, the One Meridian Plaza, a 38-story building in Philadelphia, suffered an 18-hour fire which burned across eight floors. The fire caused an estimated $100 million worth of damage and three firefighters died fighting it. It was later described by officials as the most significant fire of the century. It did not collapse. October 17, 2004, the East Tower of the Park Central Complex in Caracas, Venezuela suffered a 17-hour fire which spread across 26 of its 56 floors. It did not collapse. August 18, 2007, a fire Come on. broke out on the 17th floor of the Deutsche Bank building in New York, a building undergoing deconstruction after being heavily damaged by debris from the South Tower on 9-11. Originally 41 stories in height, it had been reduced to 26 at the time of the fire, which lasted seven hours and affected a total of 10 floors. Two firefighters died of smoke inhalation. It did not collapse. On 9-11 itself, 5 World Trade Center, a nine-story building east of the North Tower, was engulfed in flames after sustaining heavy damage from falling debris. A number of partial collapses occurred, but the overall structure remained standing. February 9, 2009, the Mandarin Oriental Hotel in Beijing was completely engulfed in flames for more than three hours during the Lunar New Year celebrations. The fire affected all 44 floors, igniting fireworks as it burned. One firefighter died fighting it. It did not collapse. No. In fact, come on. None of these skyscrapers collapsed, even though these are fully engulfed fires. Um, steel frame fireproof skyscrapers don't collapse uh, due to fires. Uh, it's just never happened before. So it's unprecedented. So it should have been the most studied structural failure ever. Remember, no plane hit this building. We'll get to the planes and the kerosene that fuels them. Next week in part two of this series. But let's look at some buildings that did get destroyed. Uh, in this case, they were blown up. We have thick, billowing, enormous pyroclastic-like clouds of solid materials suspended in the air and expanding rapidly in cauliflower-shaped plumes of incredible heat. We have 
And that heat's caused, of course, by the ignition of the hot gases in the building. We have sounds of explosions. We have heard by witnesses. We have flashes of light seen by them. If you have these features, you know you have explosions. So this is something that you, you can harness the powerful effect of explosions quite effectively to bring down tall buildings. Here's a series of them. How do they do this? Well, there's only a handful of companies in the United States that can even do this. It's, 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 it's very, it's science. It's a science. And what they do is place shaped cutter charges adjacent to the columns and beams in the building and then bring them down symmetrically or asymmetrically, however they want to do it. Uh, fire doesn't do this to buildings. So there's a set of typical features associated with these controlled demolitions. Number one, there's a sudden onset of destruction at the location, uh, at the base. Uh, usually, uh, and that's the case. That makes it, that's the easiest way for them to do this. There's a straight down or symmetrical collapse into the building's footprint. There's a pattern, that's because there's a pattern removal of column supports, feature number three, feature number four, that results in a freefall or near freefall acceleration straight down through the path that would have been the greatest resistance of thousands of tons of structure holding the building up. This results also in the total dismemberment of those structural elements with limited damage to adjacent structures. Feature number six, that's one of the goals of controlled demolition. Feature seven, there's a patterned explosions that are heard by witnesses, flashes of light seen by them. Feature eight, broken up concrete floors. Feature nine, uh, explosive charges visible at many of the floors. These are isolated or independent explosions, uh, maybe mistimed, but obviously explosions. There's chemical evidence, of course, left behind in the residue of explosive devices. Uh, this is all direct evidence of destruction with explosives. Fire doesn't create these features, any of them let alone all of them. Uh, fires cause structures to collapse asymmetrically with gradual deformation following the path of least resistance. With government documentation, uh, yeah, um, that can be very helpful. Uh, foreknowledge of the destruction, people know when there's going to be, a con some people do, a controlled demolition, so they're talking about it. Uh, Experts agree afterward, independently shown a collapse. Yeah, that's a controlled demolition. At least those experts without financial or political obligations that might sway their objective opinion. Uh, the There's video documentation. Of course, all this can be proof of controlled demolition. A body of proof that we're going to apply now to Building 7, beginning with, is there a sudden onset of destruction near the base of the structure. Well, let's listen to Dan Rather give his narrated interpretation of what he saw that afternoon. And what you're seeing are high shots. Now, here we're going to show you. 
you a videotape of the collapse itself. Describe that. Now we go to videotape the collapse of this building. It's amazing. A, a amazing, incredible, pick your word. For the third time today, it's reminiscent of those pictures we've all seen too much on television before when a building was deliberately destroyed, destroyed by well-placed dynamite to knock it down. What? <laughs> deliberately destroyed by well-placed dynamite to knock it down? Dan's using his intuition here, of course. We've all seen the old hotels in Las Vegas where they use dynamite or whatever to knock them down. Um, and problem is he didn't repeat that ever again since 9-11. In fact, we haven't seen Building 7 uh, being uh, destroyed on national television with maybe two or three exceptions uh, very early on. Uh, it's been swept under the rug. In fact, I'm a member of the American Institute of Architects. We have not seen one bulletin on the third worst structural failure in modern history. Building 7. It's as if it didn't exist, and yet we, the architects, are the ones who specify the fireproofing that could keep a fire from bringing a building down at freefall. Feature number two. Uh, is there a straight-down, symmetrical collapse into the building's footprint? Let's look from West Street. We see the East Penthouse has already come down. We'll show you this again. What's happening with the West Penthouse on the right side and the screen wall in the middle? It's all descending a half a second prior to the overall collapse of this building. Meaning what? That this instability didn't start on the left and over a period of 10 seconds continue to the right as uh, so many uh, have alleged NIST in particular. Uh, no, it, it's all descending uniformly at once within a half a second or so uh, before the overall collapse this building, meaning that the core columns, which were supporting those structures, gave way virtually instantly, all of them, all 24 core columns. Um, well, with the exception of the ones under the paint East Penthouse, which could, which could be alleged to have failed causing the East Penthouse. But the Holsey Report documents that as an isolated event. We'll get to the Holsey Report in a moment. So we have a lot of questions here. And yes, it falls into its own footprint, indicating it is a symmetrical uh, event. The center of the pile is in the center of the building's footprint, as you see. And so maybe we're not quite convinced yet. Let's put them side by side. Building seven on the left, a series of known controlled demolitions on the right. Is there any similarity? Is there enough similarity to warrant an investigation into the possible use of explosives, especially since it looks exactly like a controlled demolition, all of them, especially since fire, the official cause of this building's collapse, has never brought down a 
fire-protected steel frame skyscraper in history. Shouldn't it have been the first hypothesis examined by NIST? And yet, it was relegated to a series of very frequently asked questions put up on the website 10 years later after 9-11. Did World Trade Center collapse uh, due to fires alone? Did investigators consider the possibility that an explosion caused or contributed to the collapse? NIST concluded that the blast events inside the building did not occur and found no evidence supporting the existence of a blast event. The small blast capable of failing, the smallest blast capable of failing the building's critical column, 79, would have resulted in a sound level of 130 decibels. Well, we'll get into this. Uh, but they talk it away ignoring all the evidence for blasts that were heard by witnesses and claim that several small random fires brought down this skyscraper. Actually, they claim they were huge, but you can see how big they are. Is there patterned removal of column supports? In other words, how do you bring a building down symmetrically? Well, you have to take out the core columns all at once. And then within a second or so later, the perimeter columns. That's how you bring a building down symmetrically. If you don't do that with that level of precision, the building will fall over. A seventh grader can figure that one out. And yet these fires were claimed to have that level of precision to bring that building down. Architects and engineers are not buying it. Is there a freefall acceleration? This is really important. Why? Because the analysis of David Chandler proves it and pinned it down NIST. Let's take a look. Just by watching it, anybody can see that Building 7 fell close to freefall. To measure it, I use software to track the corner of the building and compute a graph of downward velocity as a function of time. The graph had a long, straight section indicating constant acceleration. Measuring the slope, I found the acceleration to be within 1% of the acceleration of gravity for the first 2.5 seconds. In other words, the building fell through its own structure with zero resistance. The building fell through its own structure with zero Zero resistance. This building had 40,000 tons of structural steel in its structural system, and that is intended to keep it from going anywhere. NIST is telling us that the building below it ceased to exist uh, for the first few seconds of the collapse of the building. Well, things in physics just don't cease to exist and cease to resist the forces that are on them. The building didn't disappear so the building can fall for 100 feet at free fall speed. That's impossible. That's a, a violation of, of the fundamental law of physics that says that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Yeah, there is. And in fact, steel columns, even after they bend, still provide a minimum of 25% 
of their original capacity. That's just the way it is. So all of them, so the building could never fall at free fall. That would mean there'd be no leftover strength in these columns. But as you can see, even when it enters into its plastic phase, it maintains a minimum level of strength of about 25%. Uh, now, NIST originally denied that the building came down to free fall. They said, oh gosh, if it came down to free fall, that means there'd be no structure underneath it. Well, right. When they were forced into admitting free fall after being publicly confronted by members uh, uh, like David Chandler of of the um, the 9-11 truth movement, we have now them admitting that, oh, you're right, I guess, uh, it came down for a third of its seven-second fall at free fall. They don't acknowledge, though, the implications of this, which mean the structure was completely removed, which they had said before. So you see, they're caught between a rock and a hard place, and there's just not enough people calling them out on this yet. But that's changing. Feature number five, is there a total dismemberment of the structural steel frame? Well, we had a 47-story moment-resisting steel frame skyscraper where the columns and the beams are very rigidly welded to each other. And yet it falls into a, a pile, like a house of cards, just six stories tall. All those connections must have been severed for this to happen. Feature number eight, is there minimal damage to adjacent structures? Yeah, there's some damage to the post office and the Verizon building, but the center of the pile is in the center of the footprint of the building. Are there sounds of explosions heard by witnesses? Flashes of light. This is really important because NIST says this. We did not find any evidence that explosives were used in the collapse of Building 7. We ran down detailed computer simulations of blast scenarios. This size blast would have produced an incredibly loud sound that was not recorded on videos of the collapse, nor reported by witnesses. No. Let's go and listen to a few of them. This is Daryl, a medical student on 1010 Winds Radio. We were watching the building actually because it was on fire. The, uh, the bottom floors of the, the building were on fire. And, uh, you know, we heard this, this sound that sounded like a clap of thunder. Turned around, we were shocked to see that the building was, uh, uh, well, it looked like there was um, a shock wave uh, ripping through the building and the windows all uh, bumped it out, and, you know, it was horrifying. And then, uh, you know, about a second later, the bottom floor caved out, and uh, the building followed after that, and um, we saw the building crash down all the way to the ground. A shockwave ripping through the building, a sound of a clap of thunder, windows busting out, and then the building coming down. That's pretty incredible testimony, but it's not over there. Let's listen to Kevin McPadden, former Air Force medic. And then it was like another two, three seconds, you heard explosions, like boom, 
it has like a distinct sound. It's not like when compression, like boom, 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 like floors that were dropping and collapsing. This was boom, and like you felt a rumble in the ground, like almost like you wanted to grab onto something. That, to me, I knew that was an explosion. There was no doubt in my mind. No doubt in his mind, and uh, no doubt in this gentleman's mind either. I'm going to call in Bill Rosati. He was here when it all happened. He saw it for himself. Bill, if you can just tell us what uh, you saw, what you heard. Uh, I was standing like two blocks away, and all of a sudden I just seen a big flash, and then I seen the building coming down, and I just seen people just running everywhere, chaotic-like. And this gentleman, uh, Barry Jennings, who, along with Mayor Giuliani's attorney, Michael Hess, had gone back into the building, not realizing that it had been evacuated and was an experience this inside the building. Now, this is before the Twin Towers came down, but after they were hit by planes. When we got to the eighth floor, I started walking to one side of the building. That side of the building was gone. The first explosion I heard when I was on the stairwell landing when we made it down to the sixth floor. Then we made it back to the eighth floor. I heard some more explosions. You know, also the sound? Like a boom. Like, like an explosion. More than one? Yes. We started walking down the stairs. We made it to the eighth floor. Big explosion. Blew us back into the eighth floor. When we get outside, police officer comes to me and says, you have to run. We have more information of bombs, so you have to run. Information of bombs, bombs like this heard in the late morning of 9-11. Yeah, here's one of the guys. He can tell you I'm okay, all right? Here, hold on. You want, oh, call, your, you want to call your mother or something? Is that the sound of one floor falling on another? I don't think so. That's what NIST says what people were hearing when they were actually hearing uh, sounds like this. Uh, before the towers collapsed and after they collapsed, as in this case, in the vicinity of Building 7, corroborating Barry Jennings' testimony. Uh, also corroborating Barry Jennings' testimony is the uh, seismic data, which uh, recorded a 0.6 magnitude event. This is uh, rather incredible. The peak seismic signal occurs at 5.20 and 42 seconds. Now, this uh, is uh, in, in contrast to the collapse of the building, which occurs 10 seconds later. NIST claims that the collapsing building caused the seismic signal. But how can it cause the seismic signal if it happened 10 seconds later? NIST has a handy answer to this. They say the seismic signal approximately 10 seconds prior to the onset of collapse was likely due to the falling of debris from the interior of the collapse. Again, their theory is that the inside collapsed over a period of 10 seconds, interestingly, so even that excuse doesn't match up to their, uh, their, their, their claim uh, because they said it was falling over a period of 10 seconds, not 10 seconds earlier. Uh, the the East Penthouse collapses six or seven seconds before the overall collapse of the rest of the penthouse. So it makes no sense what they're saying there. 
Plus, as you can see, the East Penthouse collapses. Then about six seconds later, uh, the rest of the uh, screen wall and West Penthouse collapses. And then a half a second later, the entire building collapses. So they are caught with their pants down here, uh, technically, and they have nowhere to run. Uh, and, and that's why we have to keep up the pressure until we get a real independent investigation using uh, evidence uh, such as uh, the seismic analysis provided by Andre Rousseau in 2009, 2012 uh, from France, uh, an applied geophysics expert, uh, author of more than 50 published papers on progressive mechanical waves and geology. He's found that the bell-like form points to an impulsive source of energy, not percussion on the ground due to the falling of debris. He says seismic waves are only created by brief impulses, low frequencies. These undeniably have an explosive origin. So we listen to the science when it's provided to us. Uh, eight, pyroclastic-like clouds. What are we talking about here? Well, the National Fire Protection Association Guide 921 for Fire and Explosion Investigation says look for large volumes of gas and the large amount of heat released of chemical explosions causing rapidly expanding plumes of hot gases. Wow. Such plumes were observable directly before and after the final destruction. Let's look. Racing away from the collapse or destruction of Building 7 in every direction is these incredible uh, expanding, rapidly expanding cauliflower-shaped plumes fueled by incredible heat. Uh, 35 miles an hour, uh, every direction away from this building. This is incredible. Are, are, is that heat caused by these fires? Which surely in themselves would have been extinguished by the mechanical action of the collapsing building. No, uh, there's something else going on here, something on the order of this, which we're going to be looking for and we're going to find. Persistent extreme heat, molten steel and iron. Well, let's look at the NASA air flights the infrared-sensitive cameras, thermal imaging, uh, finding surface temperatures on the order of 1,340 degrees in the, over the top of Building 7, the pile. Wait a minute. There's no fire on the surface of this pile. What are they measuring? They're measuring something much hotter, deeper down in the bowels of this pile that is cooling off as it reaches the surface. Fascinating. What could that be? Well, let's look at a hint from Abel Hazan Astani Azul, a engineer, a structural engineer from UC Berkeley. I saw melting of girders in World Trade Center. What? I saw melting of girders in the World Trade Center? Wait a minute. Girders don't melt at these temperatures. Uh, not not temperatures of office fires. So here's a piece of World Trade Center 7 steel that he documents that he saw melting 
and you can clearly see that it has melted. This does not happen in normal office fires. Even the World Trade Center uh, FEMA author of the FEMA report, Jonathan Barnett, fire protection engineer, says steel members in the debris pile appear to have been partly evaporated in extraordinarily high temperatures. Wait a minute. Steel, there's a problem here, right? Uh, It takes 4,000 degrees to melt steel or evaporate it. Excuse me. So what temperatures are capable uh, what 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 uh, what heat source is capable of those temperatures? It's actually documented by FEMA in their Building Performance Assessment Team report in May of 2002. In Appendix C, there's a metallurgical examination of the steel, some of it from Building 7, never before observed in building fires. Eutectic reactions causing intergranular melting capable of turning a solid steel girder into Swiss cheese. This is incredible. I mean, look at the, at the, uh, the steel. This doesn't happen in normal office fires. How could it happen? Rapid oxidation, sulfidation, liquid iron, sulfur formed during this hot corrosion attack on the steel. Think about this. This is from the official FEMA report, not from conspiracy theorists. It's perhaps the deepest mystery uncovered in the investigation, says the New York Times. And yet it's completely ignored by NIST. In fact, they threw it out of their report when they took over the investigation in 2002. And then claimed, oh, we couldn't get any steel to test from World Trade Center 7. Again and again and again, they lie, they lie, they lie, they lie. They commit fraud on the American people. They commit the crime of a cover-up of the crime of the century. And this gentleman's at the heart of it, John Gross. Previously melted steel beams, he's identifying the very piece of steel that was given to NIST to do that very report that you just saw. And yet he denies that it's there. Shadow is all over the evidence. How do you get temperatures that hot? Hydrocarbons, including jet fuel, by the way, which was not a factor in Building 7, only burn 600 to 1400 degrees in open air. But steel had definitely melted during the event. You can see it here yourself. Held in the crab claw excavator. We could tell by the color of this material what its temperature is. We're exceeding 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Office fires don't get half this hot, typically. What does? Let's look and see if there's any evidence of something that could. Possibly thermite. Well, what is thermite anyway? An incendiary used by the military... Thermite is a compound of iron oxide and aluminum, which when ignited sustains an extreme heat reaction, 
creating molten iron. In just two seconds, thermite can reach temperatures over 4,500 degrees Fahrenheit, quite enough to liquefy steel. We know that open-air fires cannot burn hot enough to melt steel, but metal had melted at the base of the towers. Appendix C of the FEMA report describes sulfur residues on the World Trade Center steel. The New York Times called this the deepest mystery of all. Sulfur slightly lowers the melting point of iron, and iron oxide and iron sulfide had formed on the surface of the structural steel. Sulfur used with thermite is called thermate, producing even faster results. Okay, well, maybe we're getting somewhere here because if thermite were used, then that would explain the presence of extreme heat. It produces 4,000 degree temperatures. It would also explain the presence of elemental iron because elemental iron is molten elemental iron is the byproduct of thermite. It would also explain the presence of sulfur because sulfur is added to thermite to become thermate, much more effective at cutting through steel. So this is pretty darn important stuff. Um, what was NFPA 921 used by NIST? They actually had a hand in writing it. That's part of what they do. Well, Stephen Jones, a physicist formerly from Brigham Young University, says, you look for unusual residues that could arise from thermite. Excuse me, this is in the NFPA 921. Uh, magnesium or other pyrotechnic materials. NIST says, we found no corroborating evidence to suggest that explosives were used. Uh, okay. Uh, a year later, though, when pressed, they finally admit NIST did not test for the presence of explosive residue. That's incredible. You cannot find what you are unwilling to look for. You just won't find it. Right? Others did, though. Stephen Jones, a physicist formerly from Brigham Young University, was sent. Uh, he's done. He did some work on on this, producing uh, a paper on the extreme temperatures at the World Trade Center. Somebody sent him. Well, gosh, I'm a sculptor. Here's a piece of my sculpture. Test it. See what you find. This is in Canada. He first notes that, gosh, uh, steel beams at the World Trade Center. They don't. This is not how they cut. Uh, this the iron workers trying to get the steel. Uh, you know, cut. Uh, they go, they use a straight line with extremely hot uh, thermal lances and oxyacetylene torches. They don't jagger, uh, produce a jagged path like that. They're they're like this. So uh, that's the first curious factor he noted. And then uh, he also finds through X-ray energy dispersive spectroscopy, uh, an analysis of the slag residue in the ends of these beams, uh, he finds molten iron. Oh, that's interesting. Elemental iron. What's that doing on the ends of the beams? He finds manganese, typical in controlled demolition, uh, well, excuse me, typical in thermite. And he finds sulfur. 
and aluminum. Uh, this is this is indication of thermite, not cutting a steel beam in half with uh, a, a thermal lance. And what did the USGS find? This is the U.S. Geological Survey doing their toxicological studies on all the World Trade Center powder. In 2005, they do their particle atlas of the World Trade Center dust. What do they find in there? Billions of previously molten iron microspheres. The diameter of a human hair on average, uh, very small, almost naked to the human eye. But they're iron. They're attracted by a magnet. This is real curious. What are they doing there? They don't know. How did billions of molten iron microspheres get in the dust uh, all the way up to 6% in some of these samples? That's incredible. It's, uh, that's up to six, that's up to four tons of this material. They don't know where it came from. Common office building dust isn't spherical, like you see here. Uh, in this piece of common office building dust, it's not spherical like you see here in the World Trade Center dust. So it's very unique. In fact, uh, the R.J. Lee group finds that these are formed during the event. They found them too. They didn't know what they were, but they found them. There they are. They're formed during the event. Um not before by the welders putting the building together, not afterward by the iron workers taking the building components apart, but during the event. In fact, they're so common, they're used as a signature by the EPA to distinguish World Trade Center dust from common office building dust. But where do they come from? Well, here's an experiment using thermite in a controlled situation, which produces slowing it down halfway or whatever. It's a lot of thousands of sparks, but they're not sparks. They're molten iron droplets, which cool and fall into the pan. See, when you aerosolize a liquid, it forms itself into spheres that's just the physics of surface tension on liquids could that explain the toasting of the tops of these cars around the world trade center what else could explain it what rational explanation in this coal in this very hot event not a cold event like some claim where people are running from this, these incredible hot clouds chasing them when the towers went down. See, you can make thermite in your own backyard, a shaped cutter charge. John Cole did it. He's a civil engineer in Florida. And in this case, almost cleanly through uh, a steel beam. So that is uh, possible.
but it's much easier if you actually get a patented device like this one, patented in 1999, designed for issuing molten iron cutting through much thicker sections of steel than explosives can even do. And much more quieter, too, by the way. Issuing a projected thermite charge particle stream on the order of hundreds of milliseconds. There are even devices, similar devices, whose casings themselves is made of consolidated consumable thermite. Nothing left behind but pools of molten iron. Well, what else was found in the World Trade Center dust? I mean, it doesn't end there. The story doesn't end there. Where did all this molten iron microspheres come from if they didn't come from the iron workers? Well, a total of seven samples were sent to this team of international scientists led by Niels Herrett in Copenhagen. Like one from this apartment in Jeanette McKinley that came from Jeanette McKinley across the street from the South Tower. Her windows blew in. It was devastating. And she was traumatized. And she collected this dust that filled her apartment. She used it in her artwork. As a result, she died of brain cancer later. Very tragic. But one of these samples is hers. They find the same red-gray chips in each of the samples. Red on one side, gray on the other. So they appear to be fluid applied. And so the, the, the longest one's about a sixteenth of an inch long. They're attracted by a magnet. So this is not paint. This is a high iron content. They get real curious. And they do X-ray energy dispersive spectroscopy again. What do they find? Iron and aluminum, the ingredients of thermite, in this fluid-applied material, in these small chips, independently collected from seven different sources. They get real curious. Zoom in 50,000 times to the red layer. And what do they find? Iron oxide crystals, rhomboidally shaped, aluminum platelets, smaller than the diameter, a thousand times smaller than the diameter of a human hair. How does that happen? This is very sophisticated material. It's set in a matrix of oxygen, silica, carbon, organic material. Organic materials used in TNT for the rapid expansion, which knocks things over. So here we have an incendiary, which destroys by means of heat, being re-engineered to become more explosive. In fact, at 420 degrees, it ignites, producing a lot more energy in a differential scanning calorimeter, which is a fancy heater, 
at about 420 degrees Celsius, it ignites producing all this energy. And, and what else does it produce? Molten iron microspheres with the same chemical signature as the molten iron microspheres found by the USGS and R.J. Lee. So you see, we know where these molten iron microspheres came from. This is a self-corroborating set of repeatable experimental data which could be brought into a court of law, which is what we're trying to do right now, to put the real perpetrators of 9-11 away for mass murder and treason. That's what needs to happen. And that's what can happen with all of this evidence, not just the nanothermite evidence. As if we didn't know where these spheres came from. They're found attached to partially ignited red-gray chips, as you see here and here. When you engineer these particles so small, their surface volume increases exponentially. So you get instantaneous chemical reactions. You've engineered an incendiary to become more explosive. This is done at the Lawrence Livermore lab. It's called super thermite. It's not, it's relatively new, but it was patented prior to 9-11. It's not made in a cave in Afghanistan. This is made only in the most advanced defense contracting laboratories. We should be able to find the makers of this stuff. The peer-reviewed paper in the Bentham Open Chemical Physics Journal says, uh, concludes that this is a, the red the red layer is active unreactive thermitic material incorporating nanotechnology. It's highly energetic and pyrotechnic. This stands uncontested. No, I mean people people wave their hands. Oh no, that's paint. Paint doesn't have these exotic properties. Nobody submitted a peer-reviewed paper to challenge the results of this since 2009 when it was submitted. That's how you challenge somebody's conspiracy theory. So we have the features of controlled demolition, in this case with incendiaries, Building 7. Fire doesn't create any of these features, let alone all of them. With additional, well, what do fires do? Uh, the fires uh, have never brought down a steel frame skyscraper, as we've mentioned, but why not? One of the reasons is steel conducts that heat away from its source. It's very dense. So we don't ever or rarely get steel as hot as 1200 degrees Fahrenheit at which event it can lose its begin to lose its strength and begin to sag. We don't want that to happen. So we put fireproofing so cement like material over the outside uh, an inch or whatever uh, to achieve the desired protection, which on most beams is uh, two hour protection and three hours on the columns. That's a lot more than 20 minutes, by the way. The fires only last 20 or 30 minutes. 
So that's about four to six times more protection than we need, which gets people out of the building safely. So we also keep the contractors from building the buildings out of combustible materials and the tenants from bringing in huge fuel loads. They regulate what you can finish, interior finishes in these buildings. And we put sprinklers in just to keep that from all, all from becoming a problem. But the sprinklers were said to have been put on test mode that morning for some reason. Uh, we have data from the FEMA and NIST reports. And the FEMA, we talked about their, their report. They were limited to $600,000 in funding. The investigators' efforts were hampered. According to the New York Times, they couldn't get access to the to to the uh, site, to to the blueprints, uh, to the people, the public, to get photographs and so forth. It was uh, a joke of an investigation. Actually, their hands were tied, uh, according to Eric Lipton and James Glanz. And in two thousand and eight, uh, NIST uh, came out with their report finally after having thrown out the metallurgical examination, as we mentioned. And uh, they said uh, they started with their stated conclusion that fires caused the collapse of this building. Truthfully, we've had trouble getting a handle on Building 7, is uh, what they came out with in 2006. And yes, they did get a, have trouble getting their hands on this. And uh, FEMA, uh, of course, uh gave us uh, on a silver platter all the evidence we need to con, con, uh, convict the real perpetrators of 9-11. But they also concluded further research, investigation, and, and analysis are needed to resolve this issue of how the building came down. So uh, for those hoping to resolve the issue, unfortunately, we had the forensic evidence put on a barge shipped to China for recycling in easily the largest and most perplexing structural failures in history at 400 truckloads a day starting just two weeks after 9-11. This is the illegal destruction of evidence in a crime scene. But they labeled it an attack, an act of war. So they didn't they weren't bound by the procedures requiring preservation of evidence in a crime scene. Prompting Bill Manning, editor in chief of Fire Engineering magazine, to cry out, crucial evidence that can answer many questions is on the slow boat to China, showing an astounding ignorance of government officials to the value of a thorough scientific investigation. The destruction and removal of evidence must stop. Immediately. I'm going to call Bill Manning today. See if I can get him to talk. Anybody who knows him out there, maybe you can help. Uh, expert corroboration? What? Um, you know, we try to find experts who aren't tied with political and financial obligations that might sway their objective opinion. Uh, how about outside the U.S.? Uh, Danny Jowenko has shown a laptop and asked for his unbiased, unprepared 
advice. Danny Joenko is the expert on this in Europe. What did he say? This is controlled demolition. Zeker weten, zeker weten. Er is nasprongen. Dit is in opdracht gebeurd. Het heeft een team gedaan van experts. Okay, and Hugo Bachmann, uh, the professor emeritus chairman of the Department of Structural Engineering, Structural Dynamics and Earthquake Engineering at Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. In my opinion, the building World Trade Center 7 was without, with great probability, professionally demolished. And another structural engineer uh, from the San Francisco Bay Area, one of a hundred signed on to the petition demanding a new investigation into the destruction of all three World Trade Center skyscrapers. Kamal obeyed. A localized failure in a steel frame building like World Trade Center 7 cannot cause a catastrophic collapse like a house of cards without a simultaneous and patterned loss of several of its columns at key locations within the building. Does that sound like something fire can do? Well, it attracted the attention of one of the top forensic structural engineers in the country, this issue of Building 7's collapse. At the University of Alaska in Fairbanks, he and his team of PhD engineers uh, went to it with three years, four years, and $300,000, putting the building structural uh components into AutoCAD because he found the problem. No other tall steel frame building had ever failed due to fire. So it's essential to ensure the public safety that the future mechanism of this, the failure mechanism of this structure be understood. So we're going to examine response to fire loads. We're going to rule out scenarios that would not cause the collapse. And we're going to identify the types of failures that could have contributed to the observed collapse. So he used all the same input data that he could find from NIST. So we're comparing apples to apples here and used the following methodology, simulated as local structural response to fire loading for floors 13 and below, just like NIST did. Examine the NIST collapse initiation hypothesis, simulate numerous failure scenarios, and identify what could lead to the total collapse. So we put it in AutoCAD first, and then he... Um, uh, went to the Abacus software. He focused on the area uh, of interest by NIST. Hang on one second. And uh, identified uh, some of the problems that, uh, like NIST's claim that the girder was pushed off of its seat on this column by these long span beams found out that it couldn't have happened for a whole variety of reasons uh, and identified that NIST left out key structural components like the Nelson studs and the shear stiffeners, excuse me, the, uh, the uh, crippling uh, stiffeners, and then found out that the, the 13th floor couldn't have crushed the rest of the floor, found out that the, all the movement would have been in the opposite direction, complete incompetence on the part of NIST, uh, uh, or worse. Uh, so the findings, NIST overestimated the exterior wall rigidity. The exterior walls were flexible. Movements were from the west to the east of column 79. And the movement of the seat was in the opposite direction. 
the shear connections in several beams were broken, according to NIST, but he found out that those wouldn't have been broken, those bolts uh, holding col- uh, the girder onto the column 79. Found out that column 79, 80, and 81 did not fail. If they could have failed, uh, then we would have had the building tipping over uh, like you see here, if they could have failed. So since they did not fail, um, what did they find? The collapse of World Trade Center 7 was a global failure, not a progressive collapse involving the sequential failure of columns. So in a global failure, all the columns have to be removed within a second or so of each other. And then you get this, which looks uh, quite similar to what the video we saw, as we'll see in a moment. Fire did not cause the collapse of World Trade Center 7. The temperatures were not high enough to cause the weakening of the steel framing. The thermal expansion did not result in a loss of support for the beams and girders. Building 7 did not experience a progressive collapse, a global collapse caused by the near failure, simultaneous failure of its columns. Near simultaneous failure of all of its columns is what he's talking about here. Let's look at the Halsey study on the left, the actual video of the collapse in the middle and compared to the NIST animation on the right. What actually looks like the actual video video of the collapse? Which of these two models? Um, interestingly, I don't know why NIST couldn't have just faked their animation even more to try to simulate what was going on. Maybe they didn't. Uh, I don't know. I'd just be speculating. Do we have foreknowledge of the destruction of this building's collapse? Remember, in when people would know if it were a collapse. Well, let's look at this. Because the, the fire chief is saying, uh, we had a discussion with a particular engineer. We asked him, if we allow it to burn, could we anticipate a collapse and how soon? Well, remember, no steel frame fireproof skyscrapers ever collapsed. And turns out this guy, ignoring the history there, says, as it turned out, he was pretty much right on the money. He said, in its current state, you have about five hours. The building had a few small scattered fires, and he's saying it's going to collapse in five hours. Come on. This can only be made with advanced foreknowledge. Chief Hayden will not release the name of this engineer. He remains anonymous. How about these construction workers? Very mysterious. Walking away from Building 7, hearing an explosion over their shoulder, looking straight back into the CNN camera and saying this. Keep your eye on that building. It's coming down. The building is about to blow up. Moving back. All right, guys. We are walking back. There's a building about to blow up. No flame. Debris coming down. What? The building is about to blow up. Flame and debris coming down? How do they know a building is about to blow up that has a few small scattered fires in it? And why are they moving everybody back? Well, maybe it's a, it's a it's 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 a caution. 
That's okay. But one of the people they moved back was Kevin McPadden, who we heard as a witness earlier to explosions. Before he heard those explosions, he's held back like others six blocks away, listening to a radio held in the hands of a Red Cross worker. And he hears this. At the last few seconds, he took his hand off and you heard three, two, one. And then he heard those other explosions. Do fires bring buildings down to countdowns? What's going on here? And we can only speculate as to why the Red Cross, if that's what it was, was talking about counting down. So, very interesting. And how about the BBC? 20 minutes before it happened, this is what they report. Now, more on the latest building collapse in New York. You might have heard a few moments ago, I was talking about the Salomon Brothers building collapsing. And indeed it has. Apparently that's only a few hundred yards away from where the World Trade Center towers were. And it seems that this was not a result of a new attack. It was because the uh, building had been weakened. Uh, during this morning's attacks. We'll probably find out more now about that from our correspondent, Jane Stanley. Jane, what more can you tell us about the Salomon Brothers building and its collapse? Well, only really what you already know. Details are very, very sketchy. Sketchy indeed. The building's still standing behind her and they just reported it collapsed. doesn't collapse for another 20 minutes. CNN does an even better job than that. They announced it at 11.07. The collapse about 20 minutes earlier, that never happened until seven hours later or so. In New York, Alan Dodds Frank joins us on the phone uh, in lower Manhattan. Alan? Alan, just uh, two or three minutes ago, there was yet another uh, collapse or explosion. I'm now out of sight. A good Samaritan has taken me in on Duane Street. But at a quarter to 11, there was another collapse or explosion following the 10.30 collapse of the second tower. And a firefighter who rushed by estimated that 50 stories went down. Um, Was there a program, a script that they were all supposed to follow? (laughs) That, in this case, earlier in the morning, the building had collapsed and they're, they're announcing it. So they can be so on the story at CNN. Had that building collapsed at that time, we wouldn't have the incredible photos of it because it would have been obscured uh, of Building 7's collapse because it would have been obscured by the massive dust clouds released, as you see here. Was it supposed to fall at that time or, or go down or be destroyed? We wouldn't have any videos of it. Maybe that's why those mysterious construction workers were walking away from Building 7, giving us advanced knowledge that it was coming down. Maybe they were fixing a dud. That's just speculation. But while we're speculating, let's listen to the words of Larry Silverstein, the building's owner, who built it in the eight, in 1986. I remember getting a call from the uh, fire department commander. 
telling me that they were not sure they were going to be able to contain the fire. I said, you know, we've had such terrible loss of life. Maybe the smartest thing to do is, is pull it. Uh, and they made that decision to pull. And then we watched the building collapse. What? <laughs> I remember getting the call from the fire department commander telling me they were not sure they were going to be able to contain the fire. I said, well, we've had such terrible loss of life. Maybe the smartest thing to do is pull it. They made the decision to pull. We watched, and then we watched the building collapse. Larry Silverstein issues a statement very quickly. Say, oh, I didn't mean pull the building. I meant pull the firefighters out of the building. Oh, yeah, that's what I meant. The firefighters were not in the building putting the fire out. There was no firefighting operations as FEMA and others uh, suggest. They made the decision fairly early on not to attempt to fight the fires due in part to the damage to the World Trade Center 7, according to this narrative. They were kept out of the building. No firefighting. So, excuse me, and then we watched the building come down. Firefighters don't make the decision <clears throat> to pull a building anyway. Well, looking at the forensic evidence that we were looking at earlier, <clears throat> aside from that important piece of admission of something on the part of Larry Silverstein. Do we have a supporting set of evidence for the hypothesis that this building came down by normal office fires? Or do we have evidence that it came down by controlled demolition? This is what we want to know from you. So uh, let's have you give your questions and your vote uh, on this evidence. If you're on Facebook or, or YouTube, uh, give that to Gail and we'll come back and bring Gail back on with, along with your questions. Because most people find that we have 10 key characteristic features of explosive and, and in this case, incendiary chemical, uh, incendiary uh, controlled demolition. With uh, additional fire doesn't create any of these, but that's all direct evidence of destruction with explosives. With additional circumstantial corroborative testimony, that's proof uh, beyond a doubt for many of controlled demolition. And that's why we have so many architects and engineers demanding a new investigation. And so I'm going to uh, make a note here on that last one. We have, we give you the opportunity to ask your questions, but while you're doing that, would you go to the website, please? RichardGage911.org, RichardGage911.org, and sign up so you can get our emails. It's real easy. You just do it in two minutes right there. Get informed. Look at the evidence that we have available. And I mean, it's... It's it's pretty incredible uh, the the opportunity that that you have here. Um, hold on, I'm improving these all the time, so I want to give you the best information you can. We have brochures that you can use, and you can uh, 
you can actually buy those brochures over at AE911 Truth. Uh, I developed these as a result of um, needing to hand them out on the street in shows, uh, conferences, and they work great. They're just exceptional brochures. The video evidence is available in documentaries, in presentations that I've done around the world, 700 almost presentations in 24 countries in over 100 American cities, uh, interviews on mainstream media and uh, mostly alternate media, and street activism exercises like last week, Gail and I will be telling you all about the the uh, the tabling opportunity with 5,000 people that came to the Reawaken America conference in Salem, Oregon last week. It was amazing. We had opportunity to, to we, we found out that a lot of people are awake in, in these conservative crowds. Um, and uh, we should do a comparison and, and find out um, in a more liberal crowd uh, what how it works. But they want a new investigation of C-O-V-I-D also, and the, the solution, the false solution to the false problem. Uh, so uh, we were quite at home there uh, among those who are awake to false flag operations that are going on around. And that's why they've signed, uh, many have signed already signed the petition that I created um, which you can do over at AE911 Truth. Join uh, 3,500 architects and engineers. Uh, there are 20 or 30,000 others now uh, demanding a new investigation. Uh, and, and donate uh, here at AE9, excuse me, here at richardgage911.org. Um, I keep forgetting where I am. It's, it's 15 years over at AE911 Truth has framed me and I'm stepping out. I have stepped out, but not all of me is out yet. I'm stretching my wings. I'm taking on new issues. If you've looked at our website, you can see many of those new issues. Um, and we're bringing, we're stepping outside the World Trade Center also. And so uh, I'm doing the work that I've always done, but I don't have the income that I always had as an employee of AE 911 Truth. Then I had uh, an income. Now. I don't. So I'm counting on you to support us. You can do that uh, on our website at richardgage911.org. Become a member, a sustaining supporter. It's $7 a month. Everybody can afford $7 a month for something as important as this. It's very important. If you can't do that, volunteer with us. We really do need help. Gail and I are on our own in the office here, but we get a lot of support when we go out and table. And uh, just like we did uh, last weekend, an incredible opportunity, but we need help with website development, podcasting technology, social media promotion, especially technical writing, foreign language translation, phone calls, radio and TV interviews, video and audio editing, uh, all of that. And, uh, you can also do something on your own without even volunteering for us. Just send our link, richardgage911.org, to every elected representative, television, radio, newspaper. Uh, it's actually quite easy. 
uh, we want you to be involved and uh, you can send uh, our link to architects and engineers. Tell everybody, you know, screen uh, the DVDs that I've made. Uh, share them uh, and the brochures that I've made one on one and uh, go and uh, download the 130 page uh, finite element analysis from World Trade Center for World Trade Center 7 from Professor Leroy Halsey. Uh, you can download it at uh, WTC7Evaluation.org. And there's the film all about the the uh, the effort uh, that has been made, uh, incredible uh, directorial effort by uh, Dylan Avery. And uh, you can get that film also uh, at AE911truth.org. Uh, you can... Uh, know that there's been a request for correction to NIST demanding that they tell the truth uh, and correct their fraudulent effort. And so that's been done. We'll, we're using that. We're suing them right now to to uh, make sure that they do correct it. I'm not suing them. I don't think I am. Uh, I, I, I know AE is, AE911 Truth is suing them. I may or may not be listed as a plaintiff. I got to verify that. Um, anyway, uh, I will go with you to a phone meeting with your congressperson. If you make the meeting, I'll give the presentation along with you for 10 minutes. So I'm ready to do that. Just let me know on our website. Contact us on our website and uh, let me know. I'll be there with you. Uh and uh, we'll bring the Bobby McElvain Act. It's all been written up, and uh, we want your congressperson to submit it to a select House committee or uh, Senate. It's all ready to go. It's a, it's a new investigation of the World Trade Center. Also, I'm on the board of the L Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry now, and we're making a film, a very important film, 9-11 crime scene to courtroom, an unprecedented film series taking hard evidence, the World Trade Center evidence of 9-11, of the 9-11 crime of the century to court. You can co-produce this film. Yeah, it's right at the top of our website, richardgage911.org. Learn all about it there. Learn about the grand jury investigation the 60 exhibits of which we're bringing alive to the grand jurors in this film. So the grand jurors are actually going to hear from the expert experts in film because it will be submitted as a supplement to the original 60 exhibits that were submitted two years ago, but we don't know that there's been action taken by the U.S. attorney, so we're suing him also to make sure that happens. And Mick Harrison is the key litigator here for us uh, of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. And we're inspired by the work of Christopher Joya in a New York town who has you, all five commissioners demanded a new investigation in the resolution, he says, you better believe that when the entire fire service of New York State is on board, we'll be an unstoppable force. 
The 50-page booklet, Beyond Misinformation, is available at beyondmisinformation.org. Very well done. And put it on your coffee table. It, it, it may even be on sale still over at beyondmisinformation.org. And the film I made 10 years ago, 9-11 Explosive Evidence Experts Speak Out, it's available for free. Take a look. Whoops. I don't want to be involved in conspiracy theories. I, you know, there are lots of them. They can go on. We can speculate on that forever. What we really need to know is how, how those buildings came down. World Trade Center 7 collapsed because of fires fueled by office furnishings. It did not collapse from explosives or from fuel oil fires. To undermine scientific integrity is to undermine our democracy. This is what denied and ignored crucial evidence. The American people absolutely need the truth of 9-11. More than 1,500 architects and engineers and 12,000 others, including many scientists, have signed the petition calling for a scientific investigation of the destruction of the Twin Towers and World Trade Center Building 7. The report, issued by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, referred to as NIST, was not valid science. They're talking about a single columnar collapse or failure that resulted in a total collapse of the building. Building hmm. number seven uh, descended in free fall for the first 100 feet, which uh, means that there was absolutely no resistance to the descent whatsoever. So all of the columns really needed to be severed at the same time. The symmetry is the smoking gun. NIST has admitted it went into free fall for eight stories. You don't need to be an engineer or an architect to see what happened to those buildings. This is controlled demolition. Zeker weten. Zeker weten. What I saw, it was a classic implosion. The center of the core, the penthouse area, starts to move first, and then the building follows along with it. NIST excluded the documents from FEMA in Appendix C that documented the evidence of melting steel. In an office fire, you cannot generate enough heat to melt steel. There were these iron microspheres present in all of the dust samples. They needed to have been formed in extremely high temperatures. All the characteristics of the microspheres, along with what I see in the attack of the, uh, the beams that were actually found, tell me that thermite was involved. In the dust, what we have found is a modern version of thermite, which we call nanothermite. NIST concedes that they found no evidence for explosives. So then we asked them, well, did you look? And they said, no, we did not look for explosives <laughs> or residues of explosives. And in fact, the evidence is overwhelming that these red-grade crystals are very high temperature incendiaries. And we have watched as scientific integrity has been undermined scientific research politicized in an effort to advance predetermined ideological agendas. 
if this is a crime, I think everybody agrees it's a crime, evidence was removed from the scene of the crime. You can't do science when you are deprived of the evidence and when your hypothesis is the least valid instead of the most likely. When the most likely hypothesis in, in the case of Building 7 wasn't even mentioned, uh, this is not science. Yeah, and you can watch this incredible film uh, free on YouTube, the one-hour version, and I encourage you to to do that. There's also an extended version uh, available. So uh, there is lots of opportunities for getting this word out. I've been to Mexico at Anarchapulco, as you see, but... Let's get into the questions. Um, let's bring uh, Gail forward. And Gail, we do have questions, I imagine, huh? Yes, we sure do. Hi. Hello. All right. <clears throat> let's do it. All right. The first question is, so Building 7 was prepared with different explosives than that of the Twin Towers. Since the Twin Towers had no pancake pile of concrete and steel was thrown about. Yeah, this is a very interesting question. The, the, the Building 7 was a very different demolition than the Twin Towers. We'll go into the Twin Towers very specifically a week from today uh, on, uh, the, on, on the Wednesday, the second Wednesday of the month, each month. That's part two, the Twin Towers explosive demolition. Then part three is the Twin Towers and extreme heat. Um, so with regard to building seven, we have evidence of extreme heat. We don't have a very explosive event hurling the structural components out of the building perimeter like we do at the Twin Towers. So we have explosives available at the Twin Towers as well as incendiaries. It appears at building seven, it's a... It appears like a classic implosion, but with a much quieter, all the witnesses heard explosions. Uh, it's it's not, not like the bang, bang, bang that you normally hear the old hotels in Las Vegas, for instance. So it's, a, it's an incendiary, which works by means of heat, as opposed to explosives, which work with gases that expand and knock things over and are very loud. They would have wanted to avoid the uh, uh, audio and visual signatures of blasts and and flashes, uh, although those were heard and seen. Uh, it's it's less noticeable in Building Seven. So um, uh, I agree with this comment. I don't know if there's a question associated with it. All righty. Uh, the next question. As I understand it, column 79 was a 14 wide by 730 high style column, five inch flange and three inch web with two inch by 26 inch side plates welded on each side. Does Richard know if that was a typical profile for this 47 core columns? No, uh, building seven was the largest column in, in the building. 
uh, which is one of the problems for NIST. I mean, how did such a robust column, as you've accurately described there, how was it um, taken down? I mean, it they had to make a claim that nine floors collapsed around it so that it then became relatively slender and it buckled. So uh, the other columns uh, were built differently. And we do have the structural documents, and you can find out what those were. I don't have much of uh, an interest in spending my time doing that, um, because what we do here, rather than devote ourselves to understanding every square inch of this building structure, we show the evidence for classic, and uh, in this case, very unclassic, but nevertheless controlled demolition. And we've done that today. And so uh, we want to know from you how how we did. Are you convinced that this is a controlled demolition? So um, the, the other columns uh, weren't as strong. We know that. And, and we can find out what they were. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Next question. Is Richard aware at approximately 2 p.m. firefighters noticed a bulge in the southwest corner of WTC7 between the 10th and 13th floors? A dead air? Could that have been the flexibility in the exterior wall from the beams attached to the girder A2001 that NIST says didn't happen? This is a very interesting question. Um. We are told that firefighters noticed a bulge. Actually, we're told that an engineer told the firefighters that there was a bulge because he put his transit on and found a bulge in the in the building. We don't know that that's true. The photos and videos don't show a bulge. Um, I don't know of a firefighter who visibly saw a bulge. Uh, Anyway, the the word on the street was that it had structural damage and so it might come down on its own. I mean, they knew, obviously, they'd set explosives, incendiaries, in case of Building 7, in the building. So they needed to say something that about how it might come down, that it was coming down. So here's a story that there's a bulge in the building. We also saw another story from Chief Hayden that said that he talked to an engineer. and If we let it burn for, when, when would it come down? <laughs> Can you imagine a firefighter saying this to an engineer he won't give us the name of? If we let it burn, because it has structural damage, it has a bulge. So we're not going to go in the building. Which which would have meant, by the way, a 47-story skyscraper, even if it did come down on its own, it wouldn't have come down symmetrically. No one ever, ever, ever would have even imagined that even if it could come down, the first steel frame fireproof skyscraper to come down in history. Uh, 
if it would have come down, it wouldn't have come straight down. It would have knocked other buildings, many of them, over in the process. So they're like, my God, they should have gone up there and put it out before that happened. But they didn't. They knew what was going to happen. They had set, not the firefighters, but others, operatives, had set explosives in the building. Incendiaries, in this case. And so they knew it was going to come down. They're just trying to make some plausible explanation as to how that could have happened. And the bulge is part of that. And the anonymous engineer who said it's going to come down in five hours, by God, sure enough, it came down in five hours. <laughs> he knew that it was supposed to come down in five hours because you can't predict the unprecedented event, the first ever in history, steel frame, fireproof skyscraper coming down. I think I beat with that one to death, Gail. What do you think? <laughs> okay, the next question. Dan Rather was forced to retire early, right? Because he saw too many false flags in his career and started asking questions. <laughs> I don't know the details about Dan Rather, but before you, I think you have another part of that, but let me just mention this. He... He was controversial. He got fired, I guess, and he's talked about it, but he's not talking about false flag operations that he's exposed. I don't know that he's exposed any of them, actually. Mm -hmm. Is there another yeah, part of that? Uh, yeah, there was. Um, he says, I know that Dan Rather was confused about the first false flag in 93 on WTC when he found out that the FBI could have stopped it, but didn't. Mm -hmm. The FBI was involved and knew what was going on. Some say that he provided the, they provided the bomb. Others say that they were just aware of it. Either way, uh, it could have been stopped. The FBI had informants in that operation from the beginning. Yep. Well, that is it for the questions. Um, there's a lot of awesome comments, but as far as questions go, that's it. And are we out of time? Um, almost. If you want to give us some awesome comments, that'd be great. If you're not prepared with that, we can let everybody go back to their busy schedules. Nope, I can read it. Um, so... One says, I love your melted steel evidence compilation. It's amazing what people will deny to protect their faith, which is yeah, that's very so good. And, and by the way, that's just the beginning of the melted steel pileation, compilation. Be sure to come back on the third Wednesday of this month for part three of this three part series, a webinar, uh, 9 11 and Architect's Guide. Mm hmm. Okay, well, there are um, other comments, but um, if you want to give me a minute, I'll go weed through them and find them. And well, let's let everybody go. Um, uh, and so, thank you, Gail. Um, wonderful job on the questions today and Aww, every you. day, usually. I mean, always. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, we uh, and we'll see Gail next week with a shiny, bright and shiny face. We have some technical issues today. Um, 
we're looking at part one today of 9-11 and Architect's Guide. I guess I mentioned next week is part two, 1 p.m. Pacific, mm-hmm. Wednesdays. The Twin Towers Explosive Destruction, which we'll be looking at the sudden near freefall collapse of these towers, high velocity lateral ejections, shattering the steel frame, mid-air pulverization of the concrete. I mean, it's exciting uh, to 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 realize that we have such solid evidence to put these perpetrators away uh, forever if we can only get through a corrupt judicial, legislative, and executive government. Uh, and that's a long haul. And that's why we're still here 20 years later uh, after 9-11. But we're not giving up, are we, Gail? No, we're not. Never. <laughs> we're not giving up. Mm-hmm. And part three comes up next. And um, then uh, we'll do it all over again in uh, in May. So join us. And it's been very good to be with you. Thanks for the great questions, you guys. That completes our webinar. and. Bye.